going to be looking at the 14th chapter of the book of Revelation. Before I begin, why don't we take a minute and pray? Uh, Heavenly Father, we ask you as we uh, dive deeply into your word that you continue to give us uh, understanding and wisdom. We ask you, Lord, that you would use your word to impact our lives, to make a difference, O oh Lord, as we um, just look at the world in which we live today, to realize that one day uh, your son Jesus is coming back. He's going to make everything right. And this should impact how we live our lives. And so we ask you to speak to us through our time today. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. I have mentioned on some prior weeks that uh, sometimes in the book of Revelation, you have what I would call a pause or you get a glimpse of something that's taking place in heaven that occurs right before certain things are going to take place on the earth. Uh, in my mind, I kind of think of the Lord's Prayer, where in the Lord's Prayer we read, Thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. And it seems like sometimes things happen in heaven that set in motion the things that are going to be happening on earth. And this is especially true in the book of Revelation. This first heavenly glimpse we get, this what I'd call pause in the action, occurs in chapters four and five, where we have a scene of the glory of God in the throne room, and God's angels are there, and you just get this picture of this tremendous glory. And then we read in chapter five how, this, how Jesus, who is appearing as a lamb, shows up, and he's the one who's given the authority to open up these scrolls. And the scrolls represent the unfolding of the end time events. They, they represent the judgment that's coming. Uh, each of the scrolls, there are seven seals, and one by one they're unrolled. Well, Jesus is allowed to unfold these scrolls, and it's a picture of in heaven, things are being set into motion, and then they'll be fleshed out on the earth. Well, in today's chapter, we get a, a vision or a glimpse in heaven again in chapters 14 and 15. And I believe that the events that we're reading about here happen, or at least they're referring to what's going to happen at the end of the seven-year tribulation period. With that in mind, um, let's read chapter 14 and verse 1. Then I looked, and there on Mount Zion stood the Lamb, and with him were 144,000 who had his name and his father's name written on their foreheads. Now, let me stop for a moment. I mentioned that I think chapters 14 and 15 occur actually in heaven, but when you read this, it looks like it's happening on earth, and I'll talk about that in a minute. We recognize that Mount Zion is a reference to the mountain upon which Jerusalem sat, and especially the temple. And so we are talking about the temple area in Jerusalem, and we find that the lamb here, however, as we'll see in a minute, there is a heavenly version of Mount Zion, and I think that's where actually these events are taking place. Now, let me talk about this scene for a moment again. First of all, I want to talk about the fact that Jesus is again being depicted here as a lamb. He's not being depicted as a lion. And you say, well, what's the significance of that? Well, I think it, it shows that the emphasis of the scene we're about to look at is the redemption or salvation of the 144,000 Jewish people who have been set apart for Christ. It's, I think, a picture of the fact that this 144,000 
This group is going to put their faith in Jesus Christ. We know that they're gonna reign with Christ physically for a thousand years and dwell in his presence. Now, again, I mentioned that this could be a physical representation because it's going to happen one day where Jesus will indeed reign from Jerusalem with his 144,000. But I think this scene actually is taking place in heaven. In the book of Hebrews, the writer of Hebrews talked about the fact that there's a spiritual Mount Zion to which we're called. As, as believers in Christ, we live by faith. And our hope is, of course, not in this world. It's not in the things that we see in this world. Our vision is, is of a hope in heaven where one day, you know, we're gonna dwell with Christ. And, and so the writer of Hebrews, in Hebrews 12, 22, wrote this. He said, in, instead, you have come to Mount Zion, to the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem, to myriads of angels in festive gathering. In other words, when we put our faith in Christ, we are acknowledging that there's this other kingdom out there that you can't see with your eyes, a heavenly Mount Zion. And I think that this is what we're seeing, this vision in heaven of the 144,000. It's a preview of what's about to happen where these ones are gonna put their faith in Jesus Christ. Let's read, um, we, we, by the way, this is the same group that was mentioned in chapter seven, beginning in verse four. Let me read that. It says, and I heard the number of those who were sealed, the 144,000 sealed from every tribe of the Israelites. So these are ones who have been set apart or sealed by God from among Israel, from all the different tribes, and somehow God has managed to preserve these tribal backgrounds, these family backgrounds. I don't know how he did it, but he did. Revelation 14.1, though, adds an interesting detail about this 144,000 as they're on Mount Zion. We read that the name of the Lamb, or Christ, and the name of the Father, the Heavenly Father, are written on their foreheads. Now, I think this is in direct contrast with what we read about in the previous chapters. Because you remember that we talked about the fact that the followers of the Antichrist were going to get a mark on either their hand or their forehead, and that this mark would represent the fact that they belong to him, uh, that they are serving him, that they are aligned with him. That's where their allegiance is, the people of this earth. So anyone that gets this mark is saying, I'm aligned with the Antichrist. Well, this scene we're seeing in heaven here of this 144,000 on Mount Zion, this is a group that have been marked with Jesus and with the Father. And again, this to me indicates that they've put their faith now at this point in Christ. Now, I wanna mention that I think again, this scene that we're looking at is, is really prophesying what's gonna happen at the end of the seven year period because before we actually get to this being fulfilled, where they're going to reign with Christ for 140, or the 144,000 are gonna reign with Christ. Before we get there, there's gonna be a lot more judgment to come. In what we read about in the chapters that follow, all those things will happen before we get to the scene that we're reading about here. Everybody, though, in these last days is gonna get a mark. Now, at the time in which this takes place, we as believers in Christ are probably gone but we already read earlier in the book of Revelation in chapter three how believers are gonna get a mark too. And so everybody's gonna get this mark, and again, the mark indicates ownership. We've been marked by Christ, 
and we belong to Christ. Now we see that this Jewish group is being marked by God and by Christ. And then all the other people that are on the earth are marked with the mark of the Antichrist, the the kingdom of, of darkness. Now let's continue on to verse two. And verse two is again part of the reason why I think verse one takes place in heaven because verse two clearly is up in heaven. We read, I heard a sound from heaven like the sound of cascading waters and like the rumbling of loud thunder. The sound I heard was also like harpists playing on their harps. They sang a new song before the throne and before the four living creatures and the elders, but no one could learn the song except the 144,000 who had been redeemed from the earth. Now, the imagery that we see here in this, these two verses, we've seen it before in the book of Revelation, and this is one of the keys to even interpreting the book of Revelation is to ask yourself the question, where have I seen some of these things depicted before? Here we have this scene in heaven where there's a celebration going on, and it's describing the sound of cascading waters and the rumbling of thunder, and there's the playing of harps, and, and we have this scene with the throne and all of this. Well, where have we heard all of this? Well, we heard about this, first of all, when Jesus Christ was introduced to us. And I think that this is celebrating the beginning of the reign of Jesus Christ, I mentioned in previous weeks that at this point in the story, Satan has been cast out of heaven along with all the demons. And now I see here a celebration that's taking place in heaven that inaugurates the beginning of the kingdom of Jesus Christ. In verse two, we read, for example, I used that, or read that expression, cascading waters. Well, the first time that we met Jesus in Revelation one and verse 15, we read, his feet were like fine bronze as it is fired in a furnace and his voice was like the sound of cascading waters. And so when you see this cascading waters image again and, and you hear this sound, you realize that this is probably the voice of Jesus Christ. And so he's up there and there are harpists up there which we read about earlier as well. Earlier in the book of Revelation, we read about the fact that the 24 elders, who I believe represent believers of both the Old and the New Testaments, had harps, and that they were singing before God. And so it's a very interesting dynamic here because you have a scene that's kind of repeated, and in both cases, it says that they are singing a new song. If we go back to Revelation chapter five and verse eight, for example, we read, when he, Christ, took the scroll, the four living creatures and the 24 elders fell down before the lamb. Each one had a harp and gold bowls filled with incense, which are the prayers of the saints or the believers. And they sang a new song. There's that phrase again, new song. You are worthy to take the scroll and to open its seals because you were slaughtered and you redeemed people for God by your blood from every tribe and language and people and nation. You made them a kingdom and priests to our God and they will reign on the earth. And so earlier in Revelation, we find this, the four or the, the 24 elders singing this new song and they're playing harps, very much like the group we're reading about now, but it's a different new song. 
Now, in the Bible, many times, the concept of a new song, like when you read in Psalms where it says, sing unto the Lord a new song, the idea has almost always been a praise for victory of some kind. A scholar by the name of G.K. Beale writes, for example, and he's talking about the Old Testament, he says, in the Old Testament, the new song was always an expression of praise for God's victory over the enemy. And so earlier in the book of Revelation, when we read about the 24 elders who are singing this new song, they are praising Jesus Christ for the fact that they've been redeemed and that they have successfully been brought up to heaven to spend an eternity with Christ. Now we come to this 144,000 and look at verse three again. They sang a new song before the throne and before the four living creatures and the elders. Now, this is a different audience. The earlier audience was Christ, and it was the, the cherubim were there, and the Father was there, but this, this looks to me a lot more like a divine concert. This 144,000, and they're the only ones that can sing this song because of the specific victory that God accomplished for them, that they had been protected by God, from Satan's attacks, they had been set apart for Christ's kingdom, and they had gone the distance, and now they were going to be reigning with Christ. But when they're singing, the audience is God the Father. It says they were singing before the throne. They're singing before the four living creatures, which are the cherubim, but I think they represent all the angels in heaven. And then it says they're even singing before the elders. The 24, 12 from the Old Testament representing the 12 tribes of Israel and 12 from the New Testament representing the apostles. And so they're all enjoying this wonderful concert and it's again related to the victory, the establishment of Christ's kingdom that first of all is gonna be established in heaven and then it's gonna be literally fulfilled on this earth. Now we find an interesting description of this 144,000 in the next verse. In verse four, we read, these are the ones not defiled with women, for they have kept their virginity. These are the ones who follow the lamb wherever he goes. They were redeemed from the human race as the first fruits for God and the lamb. No lie was found in their mouths. They are blameless. Now, let me mention, first of all, that the word blameless in this verse does not mean sinless, doesn't mean perfect. This is the word that was used elsewhere in the Bible to describe the kind of, kind of animal that you were allowed to sacrifice to God. You would examine an animal and make sure that it was a worthy sacrifice, that there were no blemishes on that animal. And that's the word that's used here. And so we get this clear picture that this 144,000 is a group of people that were particularly set apart for God without uh, blemish. Now, it begins in verse four by saying that they haven't been defiled by women and that they have been kept, or they've kept their virginity. Now, some Bible commentaries uh, believe that this should be taken literally. In other words, that this is describing celibate men who are going to be ushering in the millennial kingdom. Uh, I, I don't think that's the right interpretation here. I think there are two other possibilities that are much more likely. The first one is this. In the Old Testament, many times uh, soldiers 
before they went into battle, were not allowed to be involved sexually the night before. I think this was to make sure that they did not commit adultery or fornication or something that might compromise the battle the next day. Now, this was not a command that God had ever given Israel that I'm aware of, but it was a command that some of the kings of Israel gave. They said, you keep yourselves, you soldiers, keep yourselves from women tonight because they did not want the soldiers committing sin that might somehow negatively reflect on the battle that's to come. And so it's possible that these are ones who are getting ready for this final battle and they're being set apart for that purpose. Uh, I think, though, that there's a better explanation, a more plausible one. I think what's being described here is spiritual purity. Throughout the Old Testament and repeatedly, worshiping other gods was viewed as adultery. It was viewed as spiritual immorality. It was viewed as unfaithfulness. And so Israel was told that they were unfaithful to God, that they had not kept themselves pure to God when they worshiped other idols. Given the fact that the Antichrist is going to demand worship from all the people on earth, you realize that this 144,000 are ones who will say, I'm not going to bow down to the Antichrist. I will not worship a man as God, and they're going to flee for their lives, and they're going to be protected. And so I think that's the group that we're talking about here. They're ones who will, I think, again, eventually put their faith in Christ because they're described as ones that were redeemed. The word redeemed means to pay a price to secure the release from slavery, to, to pay the price to set somebody free. And so these were ones who were set free by Christ, devoted to Christ, and I think that that faithfulness to Christ is what's being described here, a group set apart for him who are going to be following Christ wherever he goes, as the text indicates. We also read, though, that they're called first fruits of the Lamb and God. First fruits usually has the idea that more is coming. In the Old Testament, when the first part of the crop came, they were supposed to gather the crop and present it to God, and, and really they were releasing it to God, knowing that the rest of the crop was coming. This group is one that's described as being first fruits. Now, my Bible study has some study notes, and this is what they say about first fruits. They say it, the agricultural products harvested first and given to God as an offering with more products to come in later harvests. They go on to say it is also used as a metaphor for the first people to come to faith or first people to come for Jesus. The first person to rise from the, or I'm sorry, first people to come to faith or it was used of Jesus as the first person to rise from the dead. He was called the first fruits, meaning more are coming. And he, it's also used of the Holy Spirit who's given to believers as a first portion or down payment of our salvation with more to come in eternity. And so the word's used in a variety of different ways in the Bible, but it always has this idea that here's the beginning, but more is coming. From within this context, then we realize that this 144,000 from the tribes of Israel are going to be the first group that are going to put their faith in Christ, but others will join them. A huge harvest will come. And I think all of this is describing some of what's going to happen right before Jesus comes back to reign. I think there's going to be a tremendous revival on the earth. And this is what I think we get into in the next verse. 
Continuing in verse six, we read, then I saw another angel flying overhead, having the eternal gospel to announce to the inhabitants of the earth, to every nation, tribe, language, and people. He spoke with a loud voice, fear God and give him glory because the hour of his judgment has come. Worship the maker of heaven and earth, the sea and springs of water. Now I want to mention at this point that we're about to see announcements made by three different angels in this chapter. And this is the first one. An angel, it says, is flying overhead, having the eternal gospel to announce to the inhabitants of the earth. And then he gives them a warning. Now, oftentimes we find in the Bible that before God judged a people or a nation, he gave them a warning so that they could avoid the judgment. For example, you remember the story of Jonah in the Old Testament. He was sent to Nineveh to preach to the people of Nineveh. His message was, in 40 days, judgment is coming. And we read that they responded to that announcement, and therefore, the judgment was averted. Well, in Revelation chapter 11, we read that at the beginning of the middle of the tribulation or the, the beginning of the great tribulation, there are going to be two witnesses. They're going to be preaching from Jerusalem. And I think these witnesses are going to be about sharing the gospel. When, when we read here in Revelation that the, an, the angels are proclaiming this eternal gospel, I don't think, again, that that's happening in heaven or angels are literally doing it. It's a preview because that's happening in heaven and it's going to happen on earth. His witnesses are going to be on the earth preaching the good news. And I think perhaps in response to their message, these, these two prophets that we read about in Revelation chapter 11 that are going to be in Jerusalem preaching to the people, I, I think that those ones are going to be the, the reason why a lot of the Jews, the 144,000 at least, end up fleeing very quickly for their lives, and they end up being saved in response. Now, what I want us to realize about this is this, this first angel talking about the, the gospel and talking about the judgment to come. Again, it's a warning to them. I think this lines up with what Jesus said would be the last sign before he comes to reign on the earth. Namely, that the last person who's put his faith in Christ would be saved. In Matthew 24, 14, Jesus said, this good news of the kingdom will be proclaimed in all the world as a testimony to all nations, and then the end will come. And so you realize this is exactly what we just read about in Revelation, how it's, this message is gonna go to everybody, every nation, everywhere, somehow, I think primarily through the two witnesses, but I think other believers, I think Christians are still around at this point, at some point anyway during the, the tribulation period they leave, but I think we're here and we will be preaching this good news as well and the, the message is gonna go out throughout the whole world. And when the last person has put his or her faith in Jesus Christ, then I think Jesus Christ is gonna come and reign. Now, this is the first of the announcements made by the angels, and there are two more of these announcements coming. The first one, again, was a warning that God is getting ready to judge the world. Let's look at the second warning, though. It's beginning in verse 8. A second angel followed, saying, it has fallen. 
Babylon the Great has fallen, who made all nations drink the wine of her sexual immorality, which brings wrath. Now, once again, this uses the term sexual immorality, and I think it's a reference to what we talked about earlier. It's not necessarily really sexual immorality as much as uh, they're ones who are departing from the true and living God and giving themselves to the Antichrist. And it's viewed as adultery. Now this could, by the way, be literal sexual immorality, which certainly will be true at the time that Christ comes back again. The, the nature of this angel's message, though, is that Babylon the Great has fallen. What is Babylon the Great? Well, I think it represents primarily the kingdom of the Antichrist. And so this is announcing not only the first angel that all of the judgment of the world is coming and God is coming to judge the world, but that this nation in which they put their trust is going to also be judged. Now, many people believe that Babylon, as we find it in the book of Revelation, is actually a code word for Rome. That's how it was sometimes used in biblical times. In, in the, the time of the apostles, you were not allowed to speak against Rome. And so if somebody spoke against Rome, they could be arrested or put to death. And so people would use a code name for Rome. Let me give you an example. In 1 Peter 5 and verse 13, Peter said, the church in Babylon also chosen sends you greetings as does Mark, my son. My Bible has a textual note that says this probably refers to Rome. I've mentioned before that I believe in the last days there's gonna be a 10 nation confederacy and it's gonna be considered to be a revived Roman empire. It's possible though, and this is a second possibility that I've, I've strongly considered, that this could be literally a revival of the kingdom of Babylon that we, is located currently in modern-day Iraq. It's possible that Babylon will literally be the center of this revived Roman kingdom. It's possible about that. Now, we'll talk more about that in the future. What I want us to realize about Babylon, though, is that it's very significant. A few things are significant about Babylon. Number one is, you may remember that the first effort of humanity to establish their presence on the earth apart from God, apart from Adam and Eve in the Garden of Eden, was the Tower of Babel. The people of the earth wanted to build this, this tower that went up into heaven, and I think it represents people trying to live apart from God. It's, it almost represents the deification of humanity, that we are our own gods. I think that's what the Tower of Babel was about. Centuries later, we read about, of course, the nation of Babylon. And, and in the nation of Babylon, you remember when that was established as this one of the first, maybe the first world kingdom that Nebuchadnezzar wanted to be worshiped as a man. And so you realize that that took place in Babylon. The final Babylon, whether it's Rome or the real Babylon, though, could be a picture of the revival again of a kingdom that will worship a man as the Antichrist. One thing that's interesting about uh, Babylon, it, this location of where Babylon is, is that it is located where the Garden of Eden was. And so once again, it ties together this image. If you go back to the Garden of Eden, you remember that Satan tempted Adam and Eve to become gods. They said, eat this, because if you eat this, you'll become like a god, knowing good and evil. That was the temptation. 
Then you skip to the Tower of Babel, and then you skip to Babylon, the nation, the first nation where this, this world ruler said, worship me, everybody has to worship me. And then we skip ahead to the end times, and you realize there's gonna be this antichrist figure that's gonna establish himself as God and want to be worshiped. Dr. Walvert of Dallas Theological Seminary is one that believes that the Babylon we're reading about in Revelation is the real revived Babylon. He writes, while this has been debated at length by scholars, it's preferable to view Babylon as the rebuilt city of Babylon, located on the Euphrates River, which will be the capital of the final world government. And so I find all of this is kind of interesting because it's bringing it all back where Adam and Eve, or I'm sorry, where Satan failed with Adam and Eve in the garden, or he actually succeeded there, but he wanted people to worship man as God. You see, in the end, he's gonna actually succeed where the whole world is gonna be worshiping this individual. Now, there's one other angel that, I, that we need to talk about. The first one, of course, is judgment on the world. The second one is judgment on this, this kingdom, Babylon. And then the third warning is found in, in verse nine, a third angel. We read, and a third angel followed them and spoke with a loud voice. If anyone worships the beast and his image and receives a mark on his forehead or on his hand, he will also drink the wine of God's wrath, which is mixed full strength in the cup of his anger. He will be tormented with fire and sulfur in the sight of the holy angels and in the sight of the lamb, and the smoke of their torment will go up forever and ever. There is no rest day or night for those who worship the beast and his image or anyone who receives the mark of his name. And so the third warning is whatever you do, don't get the mark of the antichrist on your hand or forehead. Because if you do, eternal hell will be your destiny. You will share the same destiny that the antichrist is gonna share with the devil himself. So I think that God is gonna use in the last times believers to warn other people about it. Now it probably won't be listened to by many people. I think a lot of people, when Christians begin to say, whatever you do, don't get the mark, that's the mark of the beast, that if you get this mark, you'll end up in hell, I think they're gonna be laughed at. I think they'll be put in the same category as people who hold up the signs that say, you know, the end is near. And I don't think they'll be taken seriously. I think because of their message though, the message of Christians and perhaps Jews in these last days, uh, there's gonna be a great persecution that's gonna take place and, and so we read in the very next verse uh, an allusion to this in verses 12 and 13. And again, I think we're still here for this part of it. We read, this demands the perseverance of the saints or the believers who keep God's commands and their faith in Jesus. Now again, saints is a reference to, I think, Christians. This demands the perseverance of saints who keep God's commands and their faith in Jesus. Then I heard a voice from heaven saying, write, the dead who die in the Lord from now on are blessed. Yes, says the Spirit. Let them rest from their labors for their works follow them. This is implying, of course, the fact that many of them are gonna be martyred for their faith, that there's gonna be a reward for staying faithful to the Lord in the midst of all that's going on. Now, immediately after all this happens, after these three proclamations are made, you realize the gospel is going out, you realize 144,000 are being preserved, you realize everybody's getting the mark on their hand or their forehead. 
we immediately read about then two reapings that close out this chapter. The warnings are over. It's time for the judgment to begin. The first reaping we read about, I believe, is the rapture. And the second one is a reaping of judgment. This is why I think there are two reapings we're about to read about. One is a good reaping, one is a bad reaping. And so let's, let's talk about this for a little bit. In, let's read, I'm sorry, Revelation 14, 14 through 16. And you'll see why I think this is the case. He says, then I looked and there was a white cloud and the one and one like the son of man was seated on the cloud. Notice that, by the way, there's a cloud He's seated on the cloud with a gold crown on his head and a sharp sickle in his hand. Another angel came out of the sanctuary crying out in a loud voice to the one who was seated on the cloud, use your sickle and reap for the time to reap has come since the harvest of the earth is ripe. So the one seated on the cloud swung his sickle over the earth and the earth was harvested. Now that's all we read about it. You realize that there was a harvest that took place, and normally in the Bible, when you read about a harvest, of course, it's a good harvest. I have mentioned many times, though, throughout this series that I'm convinced that before judgment comes, right before the judgment of God comes on the earth, that we would be taken to be with Christ, that we would join him in heaven, because we're, we're going to be spared the judgment or wrath that's gonna come. Just like Noah was preserved in the ark, before the flood came, in the same way, we're gonna be snatched up right before this happens, before this judgment hits. And again, from my perspective, uh, this is exactly where I would expect the rapture to take place. I I hold a position that's called the pre-wrath rapture of the church. The pre-wrath rapture of the church acknowledges that there's a difference between the tribulation and the wrath of God. And that as Christians, we might have to go through some of the tribulation, but we're going to be spared God's wrath. As soon as you get into the wrath of God, as we get into the bold judgments that are coming up, you realize that God is judging the world, and we're going to be spared that. And so this is where I would expect the rapture to take place, a harvest. Now, the one that's seated on the cloud here, I'm convinced, is Jesus Christ. He's got a gold crown. He's the one that just received the kingdom, and it's time to harvest the earth. It says that the the harvest of the earth is ripe. From my perspective, I interpret that to mean the last person who needs Christ, the last person to be saved, has been saved. The time is right, and he gets the word, now's the time. Now's the time to reap. Now, Paul, of course, talked about this rapture event and he talked about us joining the Lord in the clouds. In First Thessalonians 4, 15 and 16, we read, for we say to you by a revelation from the Lord, we who are still alive at the Lord's coming will certainly have no advantage over those who have fallen asleep. For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a shout, with the archangel's voice. That's a direct reference to the angel I think we just read about. With the archangel's voice and with the trumpet of God and the dead in Christ will rise first, then we who are still alive will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. And so we will always be with the Lord. Of course, Jesus had said before he... When he, uh, before he ascended into heaven, he said, I'm gonna come back. And then as he was going up into heaven, into the clouds, an angel appeared, or a couple angels appeared to those that were gathered on the mountain 
from which Jesus ascended. There were about 500 there. And the angel said, why are you looking up? The same Jesus who has gone into heaven, into the clouds, is gonna come back in the exact same way. And I think that's what we're reading about here, the harvest of believers. But there's a second harvest we read about here. And look at the outcome of this second harvest, beginning in verse 17. Then another angel who also had a sharp sickle came out of the sanctuary in heaven. Yet another angel who had authority over fire came from the altar. By the way, that fire, there could be a reference to not only the altar's fire, but hell itself. It says, he called out with a loud voice to the one who had the sharp sickle. Use your sharp sickle and gather the clusters of grapes from the earth's vineyard because its grapes have ripened. So the angel swung his sickle toward the earth and gathered the grapes from the earth's vineyard and he threw them into the great winepress of God's wrath. Then the press was trampled outside the city and the blood flowed out of the press up to the horse's bridles for about 180 miles. This is not a pretty sight at all. I think it's describing, by the way, the, the end of the seven-year period. I think it's describing the battle of Armageddon when all the nations of earth are gonna come against Christ. And at this point, I think we're returning with Christ, but there's gonna be this one final battle and there's gonna, they're gonna be put to death here. Now, in the Old Testament as well as in the New Testament, the, the pressing of grapes was a sign of judgment. And so, for example, we read in Isaiah 62, two, or 63, two and three, why are your clothes red and your garments like one who treads a wine press? I trampled the wine press alone and no one from the nations was with me. I trampled them in my anger and ground them underfoot in my fury. Their blood splattered my garments and all my clothes were stained. And this is a reference to the Messiah from the Old Testament, and it's a picture of Jesus coming to defeat the nations of the earth. Now, again, God's judgments are gonna take many forms, and we have not seen yet some of the judgments. We're gonna see about the stars falling from the heavens, and we're gonna see uh, how the, the waters of the earth are gonna be poisoned and some other things. All of that's gonna happen in between where we're sitting today and this event we just read about. In other words, I think this is the end of the story. We've got this scene in heaven. It's depicting what's about to happen. The rapture is going to take place. Jesus is then gonna come to reign shortly, but in between, there's going to be these bowl judgments. There are uh, many references again in the Old Testament about the final judgment that kind of line up with the scene we just read about. For example, in Joel 3, 13 through 15, we read, swing the sickle because the harvest is ripe. Come and trample the grapes because the wine press is full. The wine vats overflow because of the wickedness of the nations is great. Multitudes, multitudes in the valley of decision for the day of the Lord is near in the, the valley of decision. The sun and moon will grow dark and the stars will cease their shining. Again, multitudes in this valley of decision, I think it's the valley of Armageddon. Jesus spoke about this as well. He told a parable about the enemy, how the enemy sowed weeds and how the one group would be harvested and then the other group would be judged. Jesus then explained the parable in Matthew 13 and verse 37. 
He was talking to his disciples. He replied, the one who sows the good seed is the son of man. Man, The field is the world and the good seed, these are the sons of the kingdom. This is the first reaping and probably it's a, a, weep, a reaping of, of grain, by the way, not, not grapes. But this is the first harvest we read about in Revelation 14 where there's good seed that's been sown. And then we read the weeds are the sons of the evil one and the enemy who sowed them is the devil. The harvest is the end of the age and the harvesters are angels. Therefore, just as the weeds are gathered and burned in the fire, so it'll be at the end of the age. The son of man will send out his angels and they will gather from his kingdom everything that causes sin and those guilty of lawlessness. They will throw them into a blazing furnace where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Then the righteous will shine like the sun in their father's kingdom. Anyone who has ears should listen. Now I realize that this is not a very encouraging place to end. It's just where the chapter happens to end. But I think that there are a couple applications that come to my mind when I read something like this. First of all, just the reminder that it's important that we share our faith, that these things are real and people need to put their trust in Jesus Christ in order to be their, his, that he could be their savior so that they could escape the judgment to come. It reminds me also just to live a godly life. There are a lot of verses that talk about the fact that we just need to watch how we live knowing that Jesus Christ is coming back soon. And then the third thing I just keep in mind is to be alert to be mindful. As I look about how things are unfolding in our world today, I look at, for example, the peace agreement that was just signed yesterday at the White House with Israel between a couple other nations and more nations are gonna be signing peace agreements. I'm just looking at how all these things begin to line up with end time prophecies. We just need to be watching. Now next week, we will continue our story in chapter 15. Let's pray. Father, I'm grateful that we don't, do not have to uh, face the judgment of this world. I thank you, Lord, that your son was, was uh, squeezed like the grapes. He, he endured your judgment so that we could have life through him. And we are thankful for that. But we ask you, Lord, to use us as we come to these end days to accomplish your purposes. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.